0: appendix part twenty three of the world as will and idea volume two by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine appendix criticism of the kantian philosophy part twenty three the content of the absolute Ought the fundamental principle of the practical reason is the famous so act that the maxim of your will might always be also valid as the principle of a universal legislation this principle presents to him who desires a rule for his own will the task of seeking such a rule for the wills of all then the question arises how such a rule is to be found clearly in order to discover the rule of my conduct I ought not to have regard to myself alone but to the sum of all individuals then instead of my own well-being the well-being of all without distinction becomes my aim yet the aim still always remains well-being i find then that all can be equally well off only if each limits his own egoism by that of others from this it certainly follows that i must injure no one because since this principle is assumed to be universal i also will not be injured this however is the sole ground on account of which i who do not yet possess a moral principle but am only seeking one can wish this to be a universal law but clearly in this way the desire of well-being i thats egoism remains the source of this ethical principle as the basis of politics it would be excellent as the basis of ethics it is worthless for he who seeks to establish a rule for the wills of all as is demanded by that moral principle necessarily stands in need of a rule himself otherwise everything would be alike to him but this rule can only be his own egoism since it is only this that is affected by the conduct of others and therefore it is only by means of this egoism and with reference to it that each one can have a will concerning the conduct of others and that it is not a matter of indifference to him kant himself very naively intimates this Page one twenty three of the Critique of Practical Reason, Rosenkrantz's edition, page one ninety two, where he thus prosecutes the search for maxims of the will. If every one regarded the need of others with complete indifference, and thou also didst belong to such an order of things, wouldst thou consent thereto? Quam temere in nosmet legem sanquimus iniquam would be the rule of the consent inquired after so also in the fundamental principles of the metaphysic of morals page fifty six of the third and page fifty of rosenkrantz's edition a will which resolved to assist no one in distress would contradict itself for cases might arise in which it required the love and sympathy of others etc etc this principle of ethics which when light is thrown upon it is therefore nothing else than an indirect and disguised expression of the old simple principle quod tibi fieri non vis ateri ne feceris," is related first indirectly to passivity suffering and then only by means of this to action therefore as we have said it would be thoroughly serviceable as a guide for the constitution of the state which aims at the prevention of the suffering of wrong and also desires to procure for all and each the greatest sum of well-being but in ethics where the object of investigation is action as action and in its direct significance for the actor not its consequences suffering or its relation to others in this reference i say it is altogether inadmissible because at bottom it really amounts to a principle of happiness thus to egoism we cannot therefore share kant's satisfaction that his principle of ethics is not a material one that is one which sets up an object as a motive but merely formal whereby it corresponds symmetrically to the formal laws with which the critique of pure reason has made us familiar certainly it is instead of a law merely a formula for finding such a law but in the first place we had this formula already more briefly and clearly in the quad tibi fieri non vis alteri ne fecaris, and secondly the analysis of this formula shows that it is simply and solely the reference to one's own happiness that gives it content and therefore it can only be serviceable to a rational egoism to which also every legal constitution owes its origin another mistake which because it offends the feelings of everyone has often been condemned and was satirized by schiller in an epigram is the pedantic rule that for an act to be really good and meritorious it must be done simply and solely out of respect for the known law and the conception of duty and in accordance with the maxim known to the reason in abstracto and not from any inclination not from benevolence felt towards others not from tender-hearted compassion sympathy or emotion of the heart which according to the critique of practical reason page two thirteen Rosenkrantz's edition page two fifty seven to right-thinking persons are indeed very burdensome as confusing their deliberate maxims the act must be performed unwillingly and with self-compulsion remember that nevertheless the hope of reward is not allowed to enter and estimate the great absurdity of the demand but what is saying more this is directly opposed to the true spirit of virtue not the act but the willingness to do it the love from which it proceeds and without which it is a dead work constitutes its merit therefore christianity rightly teaches that all outward works are worthless if they do not proceed from that genuine disposition which consists in true goodwill and pure love and that what makes blessed and saves is not the works done opera operata but the faith the genuine disposition which is the gift of the holy ghost alone and which the free deliberative will having only the law in view does not produce this demand of kant's that all virtuous conduct shall proceed from pure deliberate respect for the law and in accordance with its abstract maxims coldly and without inclination nay opposed to all inclination is just the same as if he asserted that every work of art must be accomplished by a well-considered application of aesthetical rules the one is just as perverse as the other the question already handled by plato and seneca whether virtue can be taught is to be answered in the negative we must finally make up our minds to see what indeed was the source of the christian doctrine of election by grace that as regards its chief characteristic and its inner nature virtue like genius is to a certain extent inborn and that just as little as all the professors of aesthetics could impart to any one the power of producing works of genius that is, genuine works of art so little could all the professors of ethics and preachers of virtue transform an ignoble into a virtuous and noble character the impossibility of which is very much more apparent than that of turning lead into gold the search for a system of ethics and a first principle of the same which would have practical influence and would actually transform and better the human race is just like the search for the philosopher's stone yet i have spoken at length at the end of the fourth book of the possibility of an entire change of mind or conversion of man new birth not by means of abstract ethics but of intuitive knowledge the work of grace the contents of that book relieve me generally of the necessity of dwelling longer upon this point that kant by no means penetrated to the real significance of the ethical content of actions is shown finally by his doctrine of the highest good as the necessary combination of virtue and happiness a combination indeed in which virtue would be that which merits happiness he is here involved in the logical fallacy that the conception of merit which is here the measure or test already presupposes a theory of ethics as its own measure and thus could not be deducible from it it appeared in our fourth book that all genuine virtue after it is attained to its highest grade at last leads to a complete renunciation in which all willing finds an end happiness on the other hand is a satisfied wish thus the two are essentially incapable of being combined he who has been enlightened by my exposition requires no further explanation of the complete perverseness of this kantian view of the highest good and independent of my positive exposition i have no further negative exposition to give kant's love of architectonic symmetry meets us also in the critique of practical reason for he has given it the shape of the critique of pure reason and has again introduced the same titles and forms with manifest intention which becomes specially apparent in the table of the categories of freedom the philosophy of law is one of kant's latest works and is so poor that although i entirely disagree with it i think a polemic against it is superfluous since of its own weakness it must die a natural death just as if it were not the work of this great man but the production of an ordinary mortal therefore as regards the philosophy of law i give up the negative mode of procedure and refer to the positive that is, to the short outline of it given in the fourth book just one or two general remarks on kant's philosophy of law may be made here the errors which i have condemned in considering the critique of pure reason as clinging to kant throughout appear in the philosophy of law in such excess that one often believes he is reading a satirical parody of the kantian style or at least that he is listening to a kantian two principal errors however are these he desires and many have since then desired to separate the philosophy of law sharply from ethics and yet not to make the former dependent upon positive legislation that is upon arbitrary sanction but to let the conception of law exist for itself pure and a priori but this is not possible because conduct apart from its ethical significance and apart from the physical relation to others and thereby from external sanction does not admit even of the possibility of any third view consequently when he says legal obligation is that which can be enforced this can is either to be understood physically and then all law is positive and arbitrary and again all arbitrariness that achieves its end is law or the can is to be understood ethically and we are again in the province of ethics with kant the conception of legal right hovers between heaven and earth and has no ground on which to stand with me it belongs to ethics secondly his definition of the conception law is entirely negative and thereby inadequate legal right is that which is consistent with the compatibility of the respective freedom of individuals together according to a general law freedom here the empirical that is physical not the moral freedom of the will signifies not being hindered or interfered with and is thus a mere negation compatibility again has exactly the same significance thus we remain with mere negations and obtain no positive conception indeed do not learn at all what is really being spoken about unless we know it already from some other source in the course of the exposition the most perverse views afterwards develop themselves such as that in the state of nature that is outside the state there is no right to property at all which really means that all right or law is positive and involves that natural law is based upon positive law instead of which the case ought to be reversed further the founding of legal acquisition on possession the ethical obligation to establish the civil constitution the ground of the right of punishment etc etc all of which as i have said i do not regard as worth a special refutation however these kantian errors have exercised a very injurious influence they have confused and obscured truths long known and expressed and have occasioned strange theories and much writing and controversy This certainly cannot last and we see already how truth and sound reason again make way for themselves of the latter the Naturrecht of j c f Meister specially bears evidence and is thus a contrast to many a preposterous theory though I do not regard it as on this account a pattern of perfection end of appendix part twenty three recording by expatriate in bangor maine